Central Church, how are you today? Fantastic. Great to see you today. We are continuing a series called That's a Great Question. Let me remind you of the threefold purpose of this series. Number one, if you are a Christian, to help you grow deeper in your faith and your understanding of the Bible. Number two, uh, to give you greater confidence uh, as a result of growing deeper in your faith, to step into spiritual conversations that might be talking about cultural issues or uh, biblical issues, to help you feel confident to talk about things in our world from a biblical perspective. And the third thing is, no matter where you are in your spiritual journey, uh, we hope these messages will help you uh, come one step closer to fully surrendering your life to Christ. That's our prayer. Um, the Bible is our greatest tool for spiritual growth. It, it's the anchor of our faith. Now, where are my young people today, our young people today? Hey, let, me, let, let me see our middle, middle school, high school students, elementary students. Where are you? College students. All right, there you go. I want you to take your Bible with you to school. And, and I want you to read your Bible. And if you are past school age, I want you to take your Bible with you to work. And I want you to read it there. Inevitably, someone will ask you, what, what are you reading? And I want you to say, I'm reading my Bible. It, it could happen that someone would say to you or comment to you, uh, don't you know that the Bible was written by man and it's full of mistakes? And when they ask that question or make that comment, I want you to be able to tell them why that's not true. Why this is not written by man and why this is not full of mistakes. I want you to be able to, to do you know why they're saying that? Because if this is God's word, and if it's not filled with mistakes, then they have to change their life. Then they are now accountable to God's truth. But if it's man's word and full of mistakes, they don't have to recognize it. So we as Christians need to understand why this, we believe, is the word of God, not the word of man and not filled with mistakes. Let's pray. Lord, this morning, I pray that you would help us to value and honor your word, that it truly would be the, the anchor of our soul, the standard of our faith. Lord, that we would have the confidence that this is the very word of God. Help us to understand that today, Father, in Jesus' name. Everybody said amen, amen. All right. Who says something makes all the difference in the world? Who says it? Who says something makes all the difference in the world? If your spouse says to you, you need to lose weight, you're probably not going to be motivated to lose weight. You might be really offended. If your doctor says you need to lose weight, there's a better chance that you will start losing weight. Everything depends on who says something. If you're, if you're driving home from your soccer game or your basketball game, or your volleyball game, and your dad says, you need to hustle more, you probably won't hustle anymore. If your basketball coach or your soccer coach or your volleyball coach says to you the next time they see you, you know what? You need to hustle more. You'll probably hustle more. Because, because who says something changes everything. During COVID, I, I found myself consumed with this question. Remember COVID, by the way? Anybody remember COVID? 
I found myself consumed with this question. Who says? Someone would say one day, wear a mask, because if you wear a mask, COVID won't spread. Who says? The next day I got a report that says, masks don't do anything. Who says? If you stay six feet apart from people, no one will catch COVID. Who says? If everybody goes, moves their carts in the same direction down the grocery aisle, <laughs> right? Who says? If you sanitize your hands 350 times a day, that's how you catch COVID. Who says? My hands were raw. I got COVID like three times. Like, like who says? And the, the Protestant reformers, in response to the false teaching of the Roman Catholic Church, began to ask that question. Who says? The church would come up with doctrines like, you can't go directly to Jesus Christ and confess your sins. You have to go through a human priest, through a confessional. And the reformers were saying, who says? The church would teach that, that Mary didn't have original sin and that she was a perpetual virgin, that she never had sexual relations even after the birth of Jesus. The reformers stood up and said, wait, wait, who said that? The church began to teach that the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross for the forgiveness of sins was not enough. That when you die and go to purgatory, you have to pay for your own sins. And the reformers are saying, wait, wait, what an insult to the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. Who says? See, who says something makes all the difference. The, the, the reformers had a Latin phrase that, that they used during the, the Reformation period. It was sola scriptura, scripture alone. Scripture alone. When it comes to matters of faith and practice, the scriptures are our highest authority, not the church, not church tradition. They came to a point where they said, if, if there's a disagreement or a conflict between what scripture says and what the church says, we always yield to scripture. John Calvin, a 17th century reformer said this, we owe to the scripture the same reverence which we owe to God, because it, the scripture, has proceeded from God alone and has nothing of man mixed with it. Let me say that again. We owe to the scripture the same reverence which we owe to God, because it, the scripture, has proceeded from God alone and has nothing of man mixed with it. Sola scriptura, scripture alone, the reformers believed that the scripture was the very word of God, and so do we. So the question we're answering today is, is the Bible God's word? More specifically, I want to ask the question, how do we know the Bible is God's word? How do you know? If you stepped into a conversation about scripture, someone's challenging the fact that scripture is true, it's God's word. How do you respond to that? That's what we want to talk about today. The first thing is this. Uh, prophecy affirms that Scripture is God's Word. 
Prophecy affirms that scripture is God's word. Justin Martyr was a, a second century Christian apologist and he said this, to declare a thing shall come to pass long before it is in being and then to bring it to pass, this or nothing is the work of God. In other words, to fulfill prophecy, to say something is going to come to pass and then have it happen, if that's not the work of God, nothing is. Do you know what prophecy is? Prophecy is describing the details of an unknown event before it happens. Let me say that again. What is prophecy? Prophecy is describing the details of an unknown event before it happens. Prophecy is not um, choosing a potential outcome of an already known event. In other words, when you know the two teams that are in the Super Bowl, prophecy is not picking the team that's going to win. That's a known event. That's just an educated guess based on what you know. You're just picking this over that. That's not prophecy. Prophecy is predicting something that's going to happen when no one knows anything about it, saying, this is going to come to pass in this way with these details. So Isaiah chapter 46, verses 9 and 10, the prophet says this, remember the things I have done in the past. God is speaking. For I alone, and, uh, alone am God. I am God and there is none like me. Only I can tell you the future before it happens. Everything I plan will come to pass, for I do whatever I wish. I am God. I alone am God. Only, only I can predict what's going to happen before it happens. And when, when God gave us the Bible, it was, it was as though he was saying, I'm going to prove to everyone that this is my word and not the word of man by filling it with prophecies by filling it with things that no one could predict, no one could, could uh, procra uh, um, uh, forecast in the future in detail. I'm, I'm going to, 27% of the Bible is prophecy. Did you know that? I've read a, a range anywhere from 1,800 to 2,500 prophecies in Scripture. Over half of those have been fulfilled. I've heard anywhere from 300, because you have to kind of, determine exactly what you mean by prophecy, but anywhere from 300 to 450, just prophecies about the Messiah, all were fulfilled by Jesus Christ. The chances that one person, one person in history, could fulfill 300 to 450 individual detail-oriented prophecies is, is virtually impossible. When God said the Messiah who's going to come is going to do or be these things, whether it's 300 or 450. And for one person to fulfill all of those, that's God. So God, unlike the Quran, uh, the scriptures of Islam, where there is no predictive prophecy, or the, the, the Hindu Vedas, their scriptures, no predictive prophecy. Why not? Because only God can predict the future. Only God can say what is going to come. And in the Bible that we have, 27% of it, over a quarter of it, is 
It's just prophecy. As though God were saying, I'm just going to show you, this is not man's word. This is, this is my word, right? So let's, let's stroll through a few messianic prophecies and see what God predicted about the Messiah that was fulfilled in Jesus. The first thing he said was, I'm going to tell you how the Messiah is going to be born. Isaiah chapter 7. The Messiah would be born of a virgin. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin will conceive, become pregnant, and give birth to a son, and she will name him Emmanuel. This was going to be a supernatural birth. There have been no other births throughout human history that, that didn't require human insemination. Just one. So that was going to be a pretty unique deal. God says, I'm going to bring about the birth of the Messiah in a way that only I could do. No, no man could bring this about. So we see the fulfillment in Matthew. That prophecy, all this happened, Matthew says, so that what the Lord had spoken through the prophet came true. Speaking of Jesus, the virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son, and they will name him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. God predicted in detail exactly how the Messiah would be born, fulfilled in Christ. The second thing he said was where the Messiah would be born. He said the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, small village, about 2,000 people in the time of Christ. Scripture says, Micah 5.2, but you, O Bethlehem, are only a small village among all the people of Judah, yet a ruler of Israel whose origins are in the distant past, meaning he's eternal. So this was speaking of the Messiah, whose origins are in the distant past, uh, will come from you, Bethlehem, on my behalf. All right, how many people that were born of a virgin were born in Bethlehem? Uh, just one. Okay, the third thing, he would tell us not only uh, how the Messiah would be born and where the Messiah would be born, but he would tell us in detail how the Messiah would die. He predicted a crucifixion. He would be pierced. So we read this, and um, there's the fulfillment of that prophecy. Messiah would be pierced. Psalm 22:16 says, my enemies surround me. This is a, a, a prophetic picture of the cross. My enemies surround me like a pack of dogs. An evil gang closes in on me. They have pierced my what? Hands and feet. And that's a picture of crucifixion. Jesus was crucified on the cross. In fact, if you read Psalm 22, there's all kinds of detailed descriptions of, of the crucifixion. The, 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 they will gamble for his garments, says in Psalm 22. And remember the soldiers at the foot of the cross gambled for his garments. So all kinds of, of pictures, detailed pictures of the crucifixion of Christ. And then the fulfillment of that, John 19, these things happen so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Prophecy would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And as another scripture says, they will look on the one whom they have pierced, whom they have crucified. Not only how the Messiah would be born, not only where the Messiah would be born, not only how the Messiah would die, but that the Messiah would be raised from the dead. He would be crucified, a criminal's death, but he would be raised from the dead. So here's what Psalm 16 says. You will not leave my soul among the dead or allow your Holy One to rot in the grave or decompose by being in the grave for a long time. You will show me the, the way of life, granting me the joy of your presence and the pleasures of living with you forever. And the fulfillment of that, Peter says in Acts chapter 2, uh, to the Jews on the day of Pentecost, God released Jesus from the horrors of death and raised him back to life, for death could not keep him in its grip King David said this about the Messiah, for you will not leave my soul among the dead or allow your Holy One to rot in the grave. 
So he predicted the, in detail the, the, the way the Messiah would be born of a virgin, where he would be born, small village in Judah uh, called Bethlehem. Uh, how he would die, he would die by crucifixion, they would pierce his hands and his feet, and then he would be raised from the dead, prophesied. And then the fulfillment of those prophecies. One other one I just threw in there is, it talks about the fact that the Messiah would be, um, uh, have a prophet prepare the way for him. Uh, and that was, of course, John the Baptist. Uh, Isaiah says, listen, the voice of someone shouting, clear the way through the wilderness. Remember, John was baptizing in the desert. Clear the way through the wilderness for the Lord. Make a straight highway through the wasteland for our God. Then Mark chapter one, this is the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the son of God. It began just as the prophet Israel had written. Look, I am sending my messenger ahead of you and he will prepare your way. He is a voice shouting in the wilderness, direct quote from Isaiah 40, prepare the way for the Lord's coming. Clear the road for him. This messenger was... John the Baptist. So God sent the prophet John the Baptist to pave the way, to go into the wilderness, to baptize people for re repentance of sin, to prepare the way for Jesus who would come and die for their sins. So, so prophecy in scripture affirms that the Bible is the word of God. The second thing is providence affirms it. God's providence affirms that the Bible is God's word. Providence is the ability to control future outcomes. Providence is God's ability to control the future, to control history. Pro providence is God's power over the universe to direct it any way that he wants, to do anything that he wants. And, and God's providence is one way uh, that he uh, makes sure that we understand the Bible is his very word. God promised that he would preserve the written scriptures throughout history. God promised that when his word was put in written form, that he would preserve it and protect it throughout history. Now, who could do that other than God? I mean, people have tried to destroy the Bible. People have tried to wipe it out. People have tried to remove it from, from our existence, but they can't. Why not? because God promised that would never happen. God said that he would watch over, he would preserve the scriptures through all of history. Here's what he said. Matthew 5, 18, Jesus says, I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not even the smallest detail of God's law will disappear until its purpose is achieved. God says, I'm going to preserve every part of the word, every part of scripture, even the very smallest details. One version says every jot and tittle, uh, every, every, the smallest marking of scripture, um, uh, an apostrophe, a punctuation mark. God, God says, nothing's going to pass away. I'm going to see to it, God. He's putting his reputation on the line. I'm going to see to it that nothing in my word ever ceases to exist. Next scripture. Matthew 24, 35. Jesus, again, heaven and earth will disappear. They'll pass away at the end. of. But my words will never disappear. I'm going I'm to providentially watch over my word and make sure that it's, it's around all the time. And then Isaiah chapter 40. I love this one. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. Okay, so what is the prophet saying? Natural things all over time begin to fall apart 
begin to disintegrate and die. Everything in life. You will, I will, your clothes will, your house will. Everything over time breaks down, falls apart, and dies. God says, not so with my word. Because my word is not natural. My word is supernatural. So the flowers of the field, they'll die. The grass of the field, it'll wither and die. My word, never die. Because God is going to supernaturally by his providence, by his power, by his sovereignty, make sure that the word, the written word of God, never passes away. And he puts his reputation on the line. So if God were going to preserve his word, what would need to happen? So let me say this. We do not have any of the original manuscripts from either the Old Testament or the New Testament. So Moses, when he wrote the Torah, uh, you know, other, the prophets, when they wrote their, their books and their writings, we don't have the original manuscripts, which are called autographs. So we are dependent on copies, copies throughout the generations. Well, there, oh, I, there you go, Jeff. See, that's where all the mistakes came from, these copies, because they weren't very careful in the transmission of the scriptures over, over time and over a period. Well, let's, let's, let's take a look at that. What, what would need to happen is there would need to be a very meticulous way that the copying of these manuscripts took place. And that's exactly what we see with the Jewish people, with God's people in preserving the scriptures through history. So this is a picture, we were in Israel, this is at Masada, and, and they, they walked us through this building and there's actually a scribe transmitting the scriptures, copying the scriptures. There are some, uh, some sects of Judaism that still copy the scriptures by hand, not electronically. So this is pretty weird to see a guy actually copying the text of scripture by hand. Here, here are some of the meticulous guidelines for the scribes who copied the Old Testament throughout history. The first thing is they could, they could never copy the scriptures from memory. Now remember, the scribes memorized the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, uh, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Five books of the Bible. Do you know how many verses there are in those five books? 5,852. Okay, I'm 62 years old. I've maybe memorized 200 verses in my life. That's stretching it. Maybe 200 or so. How about 5,852? They memorized the whole Torah. But when they were copying the scriptures, they could not copy by memory. Even though they knew it, they had to have the text in front of them and copy it word for word. Every word that they wrote and copied, they had to say out loud for the phonics. They had to hear the word that they were writing so that it would be in their mind, the very spelling, the type of spelling of that word. The Hebrew word for scribe, sofer, means ones who, one who counts. The scribes counted every letter of the Torah. These guys needed something else to do. I mean, they had way too much time on their hands, right? So when they would copy a scroll, they would count the letters to make sure that it matched with what they knew the number would be for that text of Scripture. So holy was the scripture and, and the word of God because God's name was in the scripture. That whenever they came across the, the covenant name of God, Yahweh, they had to pause and go through a cleansing. They had, to, they had to get another pen to write and they had to wash themselves 
because of the covenant name Yahweh was so holy. When, when the, 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 the parchments, when the, um, the, the text, the scrolls would just begin to wear out, that's when they had to make a fresh copy because they didn't want the manuscripts to get so worn that they couldn't, couldn't actually visibly read with clarity what, the, what, what it said. So as it just started to wear, they would make a copy and then they didn't destroy the copy. They didn't burn it, they didn't destroy it, they didn't tear it up. They went through a, a reverent burial of those manuscripts because the manuscripts contained the name of God, which was holy, so they couldn't destroy it. So. Uh, archaeologists have excavated these burial sites of Hebrew texts where they would bury the scriptures. I mean, they went, they went through ridiculous means to make sure that these texts were preserved exactly. So currently, the oldest Old Testament Bible that we have is from about 1000 AD. Okay, So go back to 1000 AD. That's the, that's the oldest Hebrew Bible that we have to date, right? Well, in 1947, a thousand years later from that date, the oldest Bible, um, we discovered the, the Dead Sea Scrolls in the Judean hills in, in a cave. And, and in these, these, these pots, these jars, there were thousands and thousands of, of Jewish scrolls. Scrolls that included fragments from every book of the Old Testament except Esther. So they had, they had these, these writings that dated back to the first century BC. So this all began in about 1500 BC. So 1500 years from when they were originally written, some a little later than that, to first century BC. And in the first century BC, we have these, these writings that were stored away in the Judean hills. 2000 years later, we discover them. We discover all of these fragments, all of these copies of texts from every book of the Old Testament except for Esther. And when they matched, the, the, the oldest Bible that we have in 1000 AD with these writings that were, that were made and, and stored a thousand years earlier, very little variance, very, very little discrepancy. Because of this, this tedious, meticulous plan of copying the scrolls of the Old Testament from when it was written until when we have it today. The New Testament preservation, remember God said, I'm going to preserve scripture for all time, was even better. We have 5,366 fragments of New Testament writings. And remember, we don't have the original autographs. We have copies of that to work from. So the goal here is to piece that together to determine what the original manuscripts said. Now, because there's 5,366 fragments or of these manuscripts that we're working with, there are variants. There's lots of variants. And so, so, so in, in piecing that together, um, we recognize that the variants that they're talking about in these manuscripts, for the most part, have to do with the misspelling of a word, a, a grammar inflection in a word, omissions of letters or duplications of words or letters. But as they've, as they've put this puzzle together, uh, 5,366 manuscripts, to put it together to form the one original New Testament writing, 98 to 99% of the New Testament we have today has been reconstructed beyond any doubt of what the original said. 98 to 99% reconstructed to, to understand 
uh, what the original New Testament manuscript said. Only two variants in the entire New Testament that they've put together deals with more than one sentence. And that's Mark 16. There's a chunky section of, of Mark chapter 16 and the, the story in John chapter 8 of the woman caught in adultery, which probably was not in the original writings. Okay? I know that's one of our favorite stories, the woman caught in adultery. Probably wasn't written by John originally. It was inserted later. But if you have a study Bible, it'll say that in the footnotes. This is, this is probably not of the, part of the original manuscript. But because it's a story that's consistent with Scripture, somebody put it in. Okay? So there you go. No Christian doctrine, no teaching of the church is based on any text of the New Testament where there's a variant. So, so all of the teaching of the New Testament, there's no question but that that was consistent with the original writing of the New Testament. Now, lay that aside for a second. Let's say that we, we have these 5,366 fragments of, of Scripture from the New Testament. Just set that aside. The church fathers wrote commentaries on the New Testament beginning in the second century, second and third century. And when they would write these commentaries, they would write the New Testament text in their writings. And just from the, the writings of the church fathers dating back only about 100 to 200 years after the original manuscript, of that, only 11 verses of the New Testament are not found in the writings of the church fathers. So essentially, we could just take the writings of the church fathers and pull out the scriptures that they copied to, to, put, to give some commentary to. All but 11 verses were about 100 years away from them being, that's amazing. No, no, none of these other books, Greek writings, are that close to the original writing. So, so when people come and they say, the Bible is full of errors, here's what you need to say. Oh, okay, well, which one were you talking about? That's going to eliminate 90% of the people that say that because they don't know what they're talking about. They've just heard that the Bible's full of mistakes. So just ask them, which, which mistake are you talking about? And if they're not talking about one of these variants, which they're probably not, they're probably talking about a discrepancy in Scripture where one gospel writer uh, gives a different version of the same account or the same event, but it's from a different perspective. Every discrepancy in Scripture has a logical resolution. So you ask them, what, which mistake are you talking about? And if you don't know the answer to it, just go and do a little bit of research. You'll be able to come back and say, oh, here's why that looks like a discrepancy in the scripture. Um, the last thing I want to say this morning, not only does prophecy affirm that the Bible is God's word, not only does, does providence, but Jesus himself. Now, this one isn't as, as important to the person that doesn't believe in God, but this is important for us, that Jesus affirms that the Bible is the word of God. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 4, it says, The tempter came to Jesus and said, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. Jesus answered Satan and said, It is written. Say, it is written. Reference to the Old Testament scriptures. It is written in the scriptures. Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every what? Every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. He's talking about the scriptures. Jesus, when he's praying and doing spiritual warfare, references the Old Testament scriptures because they were given by God and they are the ultimate authority of everything in the universe. Jesus affirms that the scriptures are God's word. He prayed the scriptures because he knew they carried God's authority. Do you pray the scriptures? Do you see that the scripture has the same authority that Jesus said that they have? 
In, in Matthew 5.18, we read this already. Jesus says, I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not even the smallest detail of God's law will disappear until its purpose is achieved. Jesus said, all of scripture is completely reliable. We can trust what it says. Are you having trouble trusting an area of scripture today in your life? Jesus says it's reliable. Every detail, small and big, you can trust. John 8, 31 and 32, Jesus says, if you abide in my word, my word, uh, you are my disciples and you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. Jesus is saying his words are now part of the word of God. That includes the New Testament. So Old and New Testament are all considered the word of God. So let me ask you this morning as we close, if the Bible is actually God's word, how will it change the way you live? If it's not man's word, but it's God's word, should that change how you live your life? If the Bible is God's word, how should it change the way you pray? Like Jesus, will you pray the word of God? What part of God's word have you been hesitant to trust? Jesus says, all of scripture is reliable. And if the Bible, as scripture says, has the power to save people, are you willing to share it with others? Are you willing to share the timeless word of God? The, the, the word of God that's been preserved through all generations by God's providence. The word that's filled with prophecy that no one could predict except God. Are you willing to share the life-changing word of God with those in your relational world that the word might have its effect and bring them salvation? Would you stand with me this morning? Lord, this morning as we stand in your presence, we confess as Jesus did. The, the, the Old Testament as it's been handed down generationally, the New Testament as it's been given to us and, and copied, Lord, is the very word of God. We thank you that we can have confidence. We thank you that we can, with great joy, read and study the scriptures. With great joy, we can pray the scriptures. With great joy, we can trust the scriptures. And with great joy, we can share the scriptures. Help us to be convinced, as the reformers were, in sola scriptura, scripture alone. Amen. God bless you today.